I got my hair cut and this microphone fits a little different. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, man. I'll get used to this thing as soon as they invent another way of, um, you know, miking people. As soon as I, as soon as I uh, get used to it, they'll change it again. Um, I want us to read together from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3 today. And uh, it's good. Rudy didn't want to leave the front row. Sorry, buddy. You got to go. You, know, you don't have to. You can stay here if you want. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read at verse 13 to 22. And uh, I'm just going to preempt this, uh, this scripture reading uh, really quickly to just mention that at about eight, verse 18, uh, well, let's see, maybe verse 19 in particular. This scripture just takes a, just a hard right turn, or left turn, probably, more appropriately said. Uh, in fact, I didn't write down these quotes, but one commentator uh, I read this week, he said, it quickly becomes the most difficult passage in the New Testament to interpret. And uh, Martin Luther said hundreds of years ago, he said, I really don't have any idea what Peter's talking about. <laughs> so um, I'm going to sort of take a stab at that this morning, and sort of I'm just going to paint it in broad strokes, but I wanted just to preempt it when we get to verse 19, um, so that when, when you're reading that and you're going, huh, what in the world does that mean? Just know that you're in really good company when you ask that question, all right? And, uh, and we'll try to sort through it, though, to get at least some sense of, if not the... the the nitty-gritty, the details that, that Peter is trying to communicate there, the broad scope of, uh, of the lesson that we can draw from that portion in particular. But what I would urge you to do is to, this is what happens to me, and maybe by saying this, I'm actually breathing it into being, and I don't even want to do that. But what, what I'm afraid is that happens with this passage sometimes is that um, we, we hear the beautiful truths of verses 13 through 18, and then 19 takes a hard left turn, and we forget those truths of the earlier portion of Scripture. So listen carefully to the whole thing, and let God teach us and speak to us as we hear his word this morning. Let's stand together, can we? Verse 13, 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry. Or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then, if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death that but he was raised to life in the Spirit. So he went and preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood, and that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Christ has gone to heaven. He's seated in the place of honor next to God, and all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Was I right? Was I right? No? You got that figured out? Okay, good. Okay, I'm glad you do. I'm glad you do. Well, we'll, we'll attack, get there in a little bit. Um, but we have, friends, made it to the sixth Sunday of Easter, and next week will be the seventh Sunday of Easter, and the next week will be Pentecost Sunday, when we celebrate the, 
the sending of the Holy Spirit upon the church of, of Jesus Christ. And uh, these are good days. But, you know, as you get to the sixth Sunday of Easter, uh, it's natural. We're human people. The, the, the excitement and the enthusiasm and the joy of the empty tomb is perhaps, you know, fading a little bit. It's, it's, it's in our, you know, growing more distant in the rearview mirror. And, and, you know, that's sort of a natural part of the rhythms of the life that we live. But we are doing our best, at least in these weeks, to, to hold on to the truths of Easter and to be reminded of the, the goodness of God as demonstrated, as expressed in the resurrection of Jesus and in all that that means for us, both the way we think about that and in the way that we, in the way that we live. Uh, we're working our way through these selected passages in 1 Peter from the Revised Common Lectionary. And again, probably have to admit that had this entire section not been selected in the lectionary, I probably would have stopped at verse 18. But uh, it's nice to get pushed, right? A little bit out beyond our comfort zones. So there we go. But we're calling this series Catechesis, which simply means instruction in the Christian faith. It's how it was used the word in the New Testament, speaking of instructing people in the basics, the essentials of the Christian faith. And most scholars today believe that Peter originally wrote to some Gentile believers who are relatively new in faith. And uh, some even say that this was a sermon that Peter preached that was recorded as a, a sermon particularly to those who were coming to be baptized into the Christian faith. And so there's, there's lots of language here in this book that helps us with the essentials and the foundation of Christian faith, catechesis, both then and now, helping us again to know what to believe, but also how to live. Part of the uh, catechesis of 1 Peter, part of the, the catechesis of this Easter faith that, that Peter is trying to communicate and get, and get across to his readers and to us, uh, is the bold claim made in this passage, bold claim, not only in this passage, but really throughout the book, that our faith in Christ will have a radical impact on the manner in which we carry out our days. This isn't just head knowledge. It's not just some fancy ideas for us to sort of assent to or hold on to, but that this belief in what God did for us through Jesus and the resurrection trickles down into the words that we speak and into the actions that we act and into the attitudes that we hold, into the way that we live our lives in the world even now. Peter is very interested in Christians becoming holy people, just as God is holy, he's written earlier. So are we to be holy Christians are to live lives that look different, as we've seen even here in this passage, than those who don't believe, because at their core, they've been changed. They've been transformed by the resurrection power of Jesus. And in this passage we've read, Peter specifically is writing to people who are experiencing suffering. This is going on throughout the book, but specifically, he's addressing them in the reality of their suffering and in their persecution that they're experiencing. And he's saying that even then, maybe even especially in the midst of suffering, especially in the midst of persecution, our lives are to be revealing and demonstrating the faith that we have discovered in Jesus. It isn't known, and people are kind of divided as to whether it was some sort of official form of persecution, government authorized and sponsored, or whether it was just kind of the, the normal everyday non-believing world around them, neighbors and co-workers and associates and people in that culture who just look down upon them because of their Christian faith. But whatever the situation, here were some folks, and Peter recognizes this, who were experiencing some, some, some real difficulties, some struggles, some, some suffering, some persecution. But Peter writes to remind them and to encourage them. I think this is really helpful for us this morning. That their suffering is not an excuse. 
The, the persecution and the struggle that they are feeling is not an excuse for sort of setting aside this quest and pursuit of a holy life. It's by no means just an easy out or a reason not to, to live into this, but it is instead the precise context in which they're encouraged to demonstrate their faith in meaningful ways. I've been with my family uh, to several school plays and musicals this year. Uh, it's just kind of one of those seasons of life, evidently, when lots of young people in particular, whether in our church or just in sort of the life of our family, are, they're talented, they're, they're gifted, they're great actors and singers and dancers, and so they're in these, these musicals and in these plays. We went last fall to... Um, Little Mermaid, that was fun, a production of a friend of mine whose son was one of the lead roles, and we went to You Can't Take It With You, San Marcos did that play, it was actually a play that Kyla and I were in back in a church theater like 25 years ago, um, that, was, that was lots of fun, we got to go see Darn Yankees, I'm not sure I can say the real title in church, um, Doggone Yankees, oh, um, we got to go see that a couple of weeks ago, and and, and, and I, we have been to two, count them, two performances of Fiddler on the Roof, and, uh, and really impressive stuff. And, and I don't know about you, but I, when you go to a Broadway musical, you expect to be blown away. When you go to a professional theater, you expect to sort of be like, yeah, that was worth $100 or whatever it is that you just paid. But when you go to a junior high or a high school or some sort of combination, you kind of go in with your... Uh, you know, close your ears, students, if you were in those productions, but you kind of go in with your expectations a little lower, like, oh, I'm just here to support the kids, you know, just, just here to, you know, really boost them up. And, and I have to say that each of these productions that I've been to, I was blown away. And, and I stepped back, and I would have to pinch myself usually about halfway through the performance and say, are, are these kids 14? You know, is that, is that guy 17? And, and realize that these were junior high and high school students that were doing such a great job. The singing, the dancing, the dialogue, the, the humor, the drama, all very impressive. I've been, as I mentioned, in a couple of plays. And uh, I, I, for me, it was just nerve-wracking. I don't know about if you've been in some plays. Some people, these kids that I look at, it looks like it's just a piece of cake for them. They just show up and go on and no big deal. For me, I, did I mention it was nerve-wracking? It was just nerve-wracking. And you can run your lines a hundred times, and you can practice all the songs and the steps and whatever else it might be, the blocking, know exactly where you're going with it. But still, man, something happens when the lights go on, and the house is packed, and the curtains are raised, and it's showtime, right? And, and for me, I, I never knew what was going to happen when I stepped out on that that stage. It could either go really well or it could have gone really, really bad. Thankfully, I don't think it ever did. But, uh, but, but it's just really impressive to watch these guys just step out and, and step right into it. This is, you know, when, when it's showtime, it's time to give your best shot. You never really know. Well, I was thinking about that, and in a sense, for Peter, I was thinking about how suffering and, and persecution even, difficulty, struggle in life, not because of things that are going on in here, but because of what is going on all around you, is, is in a sense the theater in which Christians are called to really perform, are called to live out our faith. This is, this is the house, this is the stage on which we are to, to, to most particularly and powerfully, perhaps, live out our faith. This is the theater of suffering and and persecution. This, believe it or not, Peter would have us to, um, to imagine with him is when there's suffering, when there's persecution, this is the moment we have been waiting for. Break a leg. It's <laughs> like, go for it. The curtain is up. The lights are on. Suffering and persecution is happening all around you. People are talking bad about you. There's slander going on. You're being relegated and looked down upon. This, Peter seems to say, is the moment. This is your stage. This is your chance. Not to pull back, not to run and hide backstage, but to step out onto that theater, out onto that platform, and to perform in ways that would be pleasing to God. Or not. <laughs> we don't really know, right? This is the, this is the interesting thing about, 
a theater stage. And this is the interesting thing about suffering and persecution is you really, and we've talked about this a few weeks ago, we really don't know how we will respond, how we will live out the realities of our faith until the curtain goes up, until the suffering and the persecution comes all around us. When we're experiencing injustice, when we're treated unfairly, this, Peter seems to say, is the real test. This is when our faith will either fizzle out or it will find fresh and authentic expression in the way that we respond. I don't know um, what you think, but uh, it's interesting to me that if the people that, that Peter wrote to were complaining, uh, he doesn't spend any time consoling them. I, I'm... You know, I'm looking, maybe it's somewhere in here and I've just kind of skipped over it, but at least in this passage, there's no sense of, you're right, it's really hard, you know, hang in there, it'll, it'll all be okay, you know, I'm here for you. He says, no, this is the time, this is the chance, this is the moment we've been waiting for to live out. His invitation really is to see their suffering, and this is maybe a whole new reorientation for some of us, but to see our suffering as, as not something to avoid, but something to use as a springboard, really, to good and holy living. Not a time to feel sorry for ourselves, rather a time to put fully on display that transformation that God has made available in us. Does that make sense? Kind of, kind of pounding on it, but just this idea that that's the moment. It's like we, we relish the moment. And it's so counterintuitive to us, especially in our day and age, who want to run and hide from any suffering, who want to see even some of that suffering as punishment from God, who, who want to avoid any persecution as much as we possibly can. Peter says, it's there, step into it. It's a reality, accept it. It's, it's present, then use that as a springboard. Use that as a context. Use that as a theater in which your faith might find its fullest and most beautiful expression. If God's grace had changed them, if they'd been transformed by the power of God, then that change would be evident not only in times of ease, but in times of great distress as well. So here's our opportunity. The text begins, if you look back in your passage, with this, with this simple question. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? And I can imagine Peter asking that question. Who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? And I can just picture the people in, in this audience reading that and saying, well, actually, uh, Peter, lots of people want to harm us when we're eager to, to do good. And some of us have, have experienced that, right? You've experienced that, that when you do good, it's, it's easy to be looked down upon. People are threatened by you, or people don't like, they feel judged by you, perhaps. And I can even sense these folks saying, you know, I, if that was rhetorical, well, I, I have an answer. And it's, the answer is lots of folks would want to, to do me harm for doing, being eager to do good. Um, but the thrust of Peter's question is different, I think, that we need to understand. I, it's not ultimately a question that is concerned with the people around us who are eager, who, who won't do us harm if we're eager to do good. It's concerned with us who need to be eager to do good. The question isn't so much who will want to harm you, but here's the question that he's really asking, I think. Who really can harm you? Who really can harm you if you're eager to do good? And the answer to that question is no one. When we're eager to do good, when we're eager to live the life that God has made available to us, the, to live out and express the, the life that God's grace has made possible for us, a transformed life, when we're eager to live that life of, of beauty and goodness, then Peter would want to say, I agree, I believe that no one ultimately can harm us. Augustine said it like this, if you love the good, you will suffer no loss. Because whatever you may be deprived of in this world, you will never lose God, who is the true good. If we're seeking the good, who is God, we will never be deprived of the good because we have God, who is Good. Peter follows it up. Not only can no one harm us, but if we suffer for doing what's right, God will ultimately re reward us for that. It's like he's, 
He's sort of preaching a mini Sermon on the Mount. Remember Jesus? Blessed are those who are persecuted. They will be rewarded. Here's Peter saying the same thing in miniature form, just a, a mini Sermon on the Mount, reminding us that somehow God blesses those who suffer for doing what's right. I don't think, so follow me closely, I don't think Peter is saying that we're supposed to go out and seek suffering. I don't, I don't think that he's telling us that we're to go out and look for persecution. We're not supposed to go out and sort of welcome it or somehow antagonize, obviously, or put ourselves in places where we'll just, you know, want it. But he's saying that as we live this good life for God, that it will come, and we need to be ready for that. And when it comes, we will be blessed. We live with a certain posture in the world, trusting with confidence that God will provide for us, that God will protect us, that God will be with us. Sort of envision this like, like Bill Gates kind of, you know, getting held up and having his wallet stolen. And just like the mentality that is in his mind at that moment. It's like, oh really? That's, that's, that's what you want? Go, go ahead. You can have it. Because I've got you know, bank accounts that are stuffed with more money than I can ever spend on myself or the entire world, as Bill Gates is trying to do. It's, it's this idea that anything could be taken from us, this persecution, anything. We could, be, we could suffer in, at any level because we know that behind that particular act of suffering or that situation of persecution, we have in, in our corner, one who holds us and holds the whole world. All the resources of heaven are available to him. The follower of Jesus knows that those who inflict suffering have only a relative and limited amount of power. You can only take my wallet. You can only take this or that. You can only inflict me with this much suffering or that much persecution. Your power stops where the power of God begins. And so we are called to do good, to be eager to do good. The invitation in the theater of suffering is to be eager to do good as a testimony. And he gives us some ideas as to what it looks like to be eager to do good. He, he, he starts like this. Doing good starts, I think we can interpret Peter to, be, to, to say, by saying yes to Jesus as the Lord of your life. Did you hear that verse? And here it is. In verse 15, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. I think that's maybe there, maybe not. But verse, right there in verse 15, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. Peter says, don't worry about the threats of others. Don't worry about what others might be able to do to you or say to you or what, what, they're, what they're bringing about in your life. Don't fear the threats of non-believers only Fear the Lord, only reverence Christ, only have this awe and appreciation and worship for Jesus as the Lord of your life. Don't let worry take control of your life. How many of us wake up in the middle of the night, of the night 3 a.m., 4 a.m., that seems to be my time, I don't know about what yours is, but and worried, thinking about what I didn't do yesterday and thinking about what I have to do tomorrow and thinking about the, the should-haves and the could-haves and will-they-bes and, and all these different things, how easy it is for worry to become the Lord of our lives or to be thinking about the people that we maybe have let down or the people who want something from us or the people who will face and have to confront about some particular issue and, and those who are supportive of us and those who really are, are hurtful toward us and, and thinking about what the, the role that these people play in our lives. Jesus, or Peter says, don't let these things be the Lord of your life. He says, make a firm declaration. Let Jesus be the Lord of your life. I was thinking of two statements that we've used in our house quite a bit in raising our kids over the last number of years when it came to this sort of idea. And one of them was, you're not the boss of me. And... Uh, and, and I don't know if that's really ever been said, but there were definitely times when our children have been growing up and, 
and maybe even still happens from time to time now, but there were definitely moments where what was communicated, what was acted out was a statement to me or to my wife that you are not the boss of me. And, uh, and that leads us to the second statement that Kyla and I have often had to say over the years, and that's simply, remember who the big person is. And, uh, and, and we have had to tell ourselves in that moment, uh, remember who the big person is. Well, I think the, the lines just, and, and, and respond appropriately, right? In, in both in charge, but also with a deeper level, perhaps, of maturity and thinking. I think the same could be said. You're not the boss of me is what we need to say to the worry, to the, to the words, to the accusations, to the thoughts, to the threats that are all around us, and to remember who the big person is, and that is Jesus. It's not us. He is the Lord of our lives. If we're to have any chance at doing good in the world, it's going to begin by being able to say that Jesus Christ, worshiping him as the Lord of my life. It was just a few weeks ago, actually, Michelle Fitch is famous for this little saying. If she hasn't said it to you, you need to uh, get around her a little bit more often. But it was just a few weeks ago that I had a, an encounter with somebody that uh, it was sort of a church-related issue. I won't go into details, but it was sort of a, yeah, kind of a broadly church-related issue. And I just, I, I really felt like I had taken the high road, done what was good, and and still, just out of left field, I, I thought, anyway, just was attacked and challenged and put down and, and just vilified. And it was really, you know, just kind of hurtful. And I didn't know what to do, so I, I reached out to a few folks, just kind of wanted to make sure I was on the right path. And one of them was Michelle, who just wrote back, and she said, why is this always happening? Oh, well, we know why it's always happening. Because <laughs> the enemy is on the prowl, but... She reminded me, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Let's say it together. Jesus is Lord. And this is the statement that Peter is inviting us to repeat perhaps over and over in our hearts and in our minds. When, when, when things come up, we say, you're not the boss of me. There is one person who is in charge. There is a big person. And it is Jesus who is our Lord. He's the one that we worship. He's the one that we are, are, are loyal to. He's the one that we give ourselves to completely. He's the one that we say yes to. Is that Jay Cardi? Remember, maybe some of you remember Jay Cardi. He spoke at our church, oh man, 16 years ago or so, long time ago. Wonderful evangelist. He was a basketball player. He was I think about six, seven or so, six, eight, and uh, polar bear alert, if you ever, yeah, maybe you remember that, um, but uh, his ministry, he just passed away, and I went to his funeral this week and celebrated an amazing life, but his ministry was, was simply called Say Yes, Say Yes, and that was the challenge of his, uh, of his message to those who would hear him throughout his ministry, just to, to invite people to say yes to Jesus, and that's what Peter is inviting us to do. Say yes to Jesus as the Lord of our life. And when we do, we begin to be on the road to doing good, living the life that's pleasing to God. The second thing here that I notice is that doing good comes as we're filled with Christian hope. You notice that in this, still in that same verse and, and on into the second, on into verse 16. If someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. It's really interesting to me that Peter presupposes not only that there will be a Christian hope in the life of a Christian, but that it will be evident enough at some level that someone will want to ask you about that Christian hope. I read a story one time about someone who was speaking about someone who had a wonderful Christian testimony and, and was very committed to the church, very committed to the Lord, but then they ended the story by saying, I just wish that, that his faith would inform his face, and that, that, that the commitment was great, the testimony was powerful, 
but the, the approach to life and the way that he lived in the community was, was very far from being a, a vibrant testimony to, the, to the, the hope that was within him. Peter is all about hope. Writes about it from the very beginning. We've been born again into this living hope. We have this hope in us. He presupposes it. But he also invites us to be people who are allowing this hope somehow to bubble up to the surface of our lives, whether it be our face or our hands or our feet, our mouths, at some level so that the people around us are not left guessing. I was with a a friend of mine, you know, uh, another dad in Little League a couple years ago. Actually, maybe this was just last year. And he... uh, uh, he's a believer, and he said, you know, James, it would be, how, how tragic it would be, he said, if we were to coach and be a part of this league with all these other parents and families and dads for seven or eight years, and to somehow wrap up that time and not to have made an impact for, for Jesus and for the grace of God. Well, um, it's possible that this last week Thomas played his last game in Goleta Valley Little League, which is a, a shocker to me and how quickly the seasons of our lives go. He might play a little bit next year, but possibly not. I won't speak for his athletic career. Um, but, but if, in fact, that is the case, I'm left now to, to wonder. And I, I pray and trust and believe that at some level, that the hope that has been in me has been able to bubble up to the surface in the words that I've said, the ways that I've argued or not argued with the umpires, <laughs> the, uh, the ways that I've spoken to the, the, the boys, the kids, the way that I've interacted before and after the games as well, that our hope somehow would find a means of experience being expressed to the world around us. This is what Peter presupposes because he's supposing that someone's going to ask you. But if someone's going to ask us, we're going to have to do something to allow that hope to get out. Does that make sense? We're going to have to stir up something in us. We're going to have to put ourselves in these situations where there's difficulty and struggle and suffering and persecution, and especially in those places, react in, in, in different ways. In holy ways. Because those are the places and those are the situations where the people around us will most likely expect us to you know, fold like a lawn chair. Just, just crumple like a, an old piece of paper and just, just start to act and live just like everybody else in the world. But what, what Peter's inviting us to do is to know, live in a new way. That people might look at us and say, there is something different. There is a hope. There is an optimism. There's a possibility that reigns and rules in that person's life, and I have to know something about it. And those questions might come in strange ways. They might come like, what is the hope that you have within you? Or it might be like, what in the world's going on there? Or it might be, I noticed that you didn't do this. Or it might be any other variation or form of question that shows some intrigue. And what Peter says is that in those moments when we must be ready to give a word, to speak a truth, to explain what it is that's going on inside of us. And so we need to know, we need to, we need to love the Lord. One of my friends who was a, a great philosopher, Steve Heisinga, a number of years ago, he used to really love to read the verse, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but he always read it, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. <laughs> he really was, thought it was important for us to love the Lord with our mind. And in fact, we do need to love the Lord with our mind, our, our thinking capacities. And, and one of the ways that we need to love the Lord with our mind is to think through what it is that he has done for us, to think through what it is that God has done for us in Jesus and the salvation that he's brought us to. And why in the world we do have this hope? Why in the world do we have this hope, both for this life and for the life to come, to to, to believe that our faith is not groundless, it's not irrational, but to allow it to be vibrant and personal and alive in us and to be able to speak of it in such a way that is clear and understandable and 
You know, it's like an elevator speech, right? You're, you you got to have an elevator speech if you're representing a company or, a, you know, if you're, if you're starting a new business or working for a nonprofit, you got to be able to, in the time between the ground floor and the, you know, the third floor, you got to be able to say, this is what I think about this. You got to have an elevator speech about Jesus, be able to talk about what it is that he's done. But what Peter is as clear about in this text is not just that we have it, but how we say it. That's what's so crazy. It's like he really cares not just about the content, but about the tone of our expression as well. I heard a great kind of takeoff on that from Jerry Seinfeld. I won't try to repeat it a long time ago, but he just had a whole shtick about, I don't like your tone. You know, and, and, and how easy it is I'm, I'm to, to slip into a, a certain tone when you didn't even know you had that tone. And uh, maybe even to be heard in a certain way because of a certain tone that you are expressing. And Peter is very concerned about our tone, both the, the way that we say it, the inflection, the, the ups and downs, the excitement, the enthusiasm, but also the The gentleness and the respect, the way in which we share for Peter is as important as that of what it is that we share, that we would be active and attractive in our faith in the world, but that our witness would be winsome, that it would be be happy, (laughs) that it would be gentle, that it would be caring and concerned not just to get our elevator speech out, but concerned about the very person to whom we're speaking, that these people wouldn't become folks who are walking around with a, you know, a target on their back or some sort of, some sort of you know, person that we just have to, 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 to conquer with our, with our message of hope. How ironic and contradictory is that? But that we would care deeply, Peter would tell us, and lovingly, and that that would be the reason why we would share the hope that we have in the first place, because we care so deeply, and that the tone, the expression of our sharing would follow through in that same way. Doing good comes as we are filled with Christian hope. Here's Here's the last idea, and then we'll talk about verse 19. Doing good will be marked by a steadfast integrity. I love this line right there in, um, in uh, verse 16, keep, and it starts like this, keep your conscience clear. And we'll read the rest. Then if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live. And on to the next, because you belong to Christ. Uh, A life that belongs to Christ. Conduct that flows out of this sense of connectedness to Jesus doing good because we are his. He has laid his claim on us. He has, he, has, he has been granted ownership of who we are. We are one with him, united with him, and because we are, our lives begin to take on that look of a life uh, directed by Jesus, a life belonging to him, a, a life that becomes a convicting presence in the world. It's very interesting that, that Peter would say this, that we live so good that our lives begin to be this convicting presence, that those who have, you get this, that those who have slandered us or persecuted us or who are causing the suffering would see the, the good lives of believers and be ashamed of themselves be ashamed themselves of the, the way that they had treated them, that would be ashamed even now, but would be ultimately ashamed at the judgment day when they recognized that their slander was against those who were living lives pleasing to God. This convicting presence of, of, of a life well lived, a steadfast integrity, a, con- a clear and clean conscience. When I read this passage, that, that phrase just, just jumped out at me. It was the one sentence, maybe it was kind of right there in the middle of the, of the section, but it was the one that just jumped out at me so, so starkly in such bold print because it just made me think about us and what it, what it, what it would mean for us to be people who, who go to bed every night and who wake up every morning with just a, a clean conscience. 
Just knowing that God has transformed us, but not only has he saved us by his grace, but he's at work within us and we're responding to that grace with a a life that seeks to be pleasing to him. And in so doing and empowered by his Holy Spirit, we're, we're making decisions every day. We're making choices every day that in such a way that when it comes to the end of the day, we're able to sit back and say, those are some good ones. I, I really got nothing plaguing me right now. And, and as we stop and think, if in fact there are some that plague us, that we are able to, to write them down or we're able to somehow note them, that we might deal with them, that we might be people who are moving in the direction of a clear and clean conscience. What a freedom we would experience in our lives. How many of us live with just memories or mistakes or issues or things that we have done or been or said or whatever it might be that just plague us and just remain in our conscience and, and just dwell there and impact us in such negative and hurtful ways that we would be people who are just who are, who are determined to say, no, I belong to God. I'm going I'm to live in such a way that I'm going to I'm begin to move in, in very good ways. I, this comes out for me in a, in a couple of different ways, just really, really small. And, and this is kind of how I, I thought. This is one of the ways, some of the ways that maybe I can, I can really start to just practice integrity, just practice what it takes to... And one of them is... Um, you're going to laugh at this one for sure. But whenever I come to a four-way stop sign, and I don't even know why I'm sharing this, but it's kind of, it's just an interesting insight into just kind of how I think. And especially this one right down here. But any, I, it started here, and you'll understand why, and then it has gone to any four-way stop sign. The first thing I do, especially, or when I come to a four-way stop sign, when other cars come at the same time, Right? You know what I'm you're picturing the scene with me? As I drive up, I just start waving to the person to my right. Instead of waiting for them to gun it and then me to gun it and break and and then just to start, you know, cussing at me or whatever. And I just I just get there and the first thing I do is just start waving that one through. And then I wave that one through, and then this one. And I, I, I realized, I think it was one day I just got down here to this stop. So this was a long time ago. I got down to this one right here as I was leaving. And uh, I stopped, and somebody else came at the right time, and I was just like, Burr, you know, right through. I'm like, see you, dude, you know. And, and I thought, what if that person, like, knows that I'm the pastor of that church right there? What a terrible witness. I mean, maybe they just came once, or maybe they just seen me pulling into the parking lot there. Maybe they don't even know that I'm the pastor, but they know I'm affiliated with it, and that's the testimony that they're getting from that church, is this guy is just going to take every inch he can get and, and just make it all about him. So I, I just, very little, very small, it started right there, come to that, same time, you go ahead, you go ahead. Now it's just kind of, really, it's sort of become selfish, because it actually helps things go faster at a stop sign when you do that. The, the other one, um, I don't know if that's a mark of integrity or just, I don't know what it is, but uh, the other one I think is a mark of integrity is just, uh, I, I'm like ruthless about uh, making sure that I pay the right amount for whatever I, I purchased. And, you know, people give change back all the time incorrectly or, you know, they just, don't, yeah, give you too much, typically, or don't charge you enough for what it was that you ordered. And, and I've just been, I've tried to be as ruthless as I possibly can in terms of noticing when that happens and saying something to the person. Number, number one, anybody ever worked in the service industry or in some place where if you didn't charge enough, I mean, it wasn't the person who, you know, got away with it that got in trouble, it was you. And so I've been thinking just about those people in particular, just trying to help them out a little bit. But, but really, it's just a matter of, hey, I, I'm paying for what I got. And this was really uh, humorous and fun. A couple years ago, we went to a place, and we were using our, uh, our access card. And the, the um, access card was this, and I'll, I'll try to wrap up really quick. But the, the, the deal was, because the kids are all standing right there. 
Okay. Um, anyway, maybe they're doing something else. Uh, the access card was this, buy one, get one, half off. Buy one, get one, half off. And so my thinking was is that I would buy one and then I would buy another one for my wife or I would buy one for my wife, I'm sorry, and I would buy another one for myself that I would get half off, right, that I'd get half price. But when the lady rang it up, she gave us, uh, we bought one and she gave us the other one for free. And, and I, I looked at her and I said, well, I really appreciate the, the deal, but I, I'm pretty sure the access deal at this restaurant is to buy one and get one half off. And she said, yeah, right, buy one, get one half off. And I said, no. Well, then you didn't charge me enough because I'm only supposed to get half off of the second item. She said, no, 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 buy one, get one half off. I said, what are you talking about? Buy one, buy one, get one half off. She said, no, buy one, get one half off. <laughs> and in my head, I said, lady, you are crazy. You are but I realized in that moment that I was not going to win. And as much as I wanted to have steadfast integrity, the, the, the example of having steadfast integrity in this moment was to, take, to buy one and get one half off. I still love going to places and hoping someone will say that again, but that was the most creative, unique thing I've ever heard in my life. But even with this, just this idea, just, and I would just encourage you, whether it's, man, when you see the look on a waitress's face or a, you know, a checker at a grocery market or just, you know, when, when you say, actually, you gave me too much, I mean, it's shocking. And, and what, what could happen to maybe communicate the hope that is within us just by these small but significant, and, and here's the thing, just steadfast acts of integrity. Jay Carty told this story. I didn't remember the whole story. I just remember the line. He, he had a line that went with just about everything, and the line was, don't take the first $5. And, and I don't remember the story, but the, but, but the point of the story was, once you take the first $5 that isn't rightly yours, then how easy it becomes to take the next $5 and the next $10 and to slip the next 20 or whatever it might be. And suddenly our lives of integrity have just fallen to pieces. And so that's another, just his, his uh, sort of legacy in my own life, to be someone who just refuses to take the first five. Just be someone who's living with a steadfast integrity, doing good in the world. Well, doing good, doing good. I think the point of the verses that are to come are simply this. Peter wants us to know that, that if we are to do good in the world and to experience suffering, but to know that even in that suffering we might experience great reward and fullness of life, and that nothing in this world ultimately can cause a suffering that, that, that finishes, us off, finishes us off completely, then we can only do that because of the reality that Jesus has already done it. Verse 18 in particular, he talks about it. Jesus suffered. He suffered so that he might lead you to God. Jesus suffered. He did what was right. He did what was good. And yet he suffered. And yet... He was lifted up. Verses 19 and 20 and 21. What we know is this, is that Jesus uh, went and preached to some spirits somewhere at some time. And the commentaries are divided as to when he preached, to whom he preached, and what exactly he preached. This has given rise, this verse and some others has given rise to the words in the Apostles' Creed about Jesus descending into hell. And so most, most traditional interpretations are that Jesus went to preach to the spirits in hell in between his death and his resurrection and traditionally proclaimed the gospel there. Others say that, no, he was preaching to some spirits who had 
disobeyed some the sons of, of, of God that had disobeyed God back in Genesis chapter 6, a really kind of small reference. He was going to preach to them, and he wasn't preaching a word of evangelism. He was preaching a word of judgment. You're, you're done. It's over. I've been resurrected, and there is no other power at play in this, in this world. What, what I don't want us to do is sort of, one guy said it like this, we don't want to get so concerned with Jesus' itinerary between Golgotha and the empty tomb that we lose sight of the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is this, that Jesus suffered, that he died for us, that he was raised to new life, and that when he was raised to new life, in that last verse, 22, he was not only raised to new life, but he was soon ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of the Father, and every authority and power are under his feet. So those of us who suffer now can know that Jesus set the pattern for us and that his pattern ended in exaltation. But not only did he set the pattern for us, but he gives us the power that we might live this out well. Let's pray. We need to have communion. Jesus, thank you so much. I want to invite our worship team and our servers to come. We're so thankful, Jesus, for what you did for us and for the life that we are called to because of it. We're thankful, Jesus, for the pattern that you set for us, for the, uh, for the suffering that you endured, for the, for the faithful journey that you walked, the, 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 the fact that you never sinned, that you were perfect in every way, that you not only suffered, but you died, that we might be brought to God. And that you were exalted, you were raised, and you have ascended into heaven. Thank you, Jesus, that not only have you set the pattern for us, but you've made it possible through this very power that raised you to life. It's the same power that we have available to us. That we might, in the face of suffering, in this theater of slander and persecution and difficulty and struggle, we might be ones who would use that as a springboard to, do, to live a life that is that is well-lived, that is good and right and holy and pleasing to you, that it might bring glory and honor to your name. And so as we come today to the table, Lord Jesus, may we do so with, with really grateful hearts for all that you've done through your broken body and your shed blood. And may we do so with great anticipation that you will strengthen us and, and, and encourage us and Help us as we move forward from this place and from these days to live a life that is pleasing and glorifying, that is attractive and dynamic, that is drawing more and more people to you. So we remember, Jesus, it was on that night when you were betrayed that you took the bread and you broke it and passed it to your disciples and you said, this is my body broken for you. Take of it and eat. And each time you do, remember me. And in the same way you took the cup, you blessed it, you passed it to them and said, this is the cup of salvation, the symbol of my blood shed for you. Take of it and drink, and each time you do, remember me. So we remember you, Jesus, in these moments, and we celebrate uh, the, the body and blood that was broken and shed for us and for our life, both now and forever. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.